We are going to continue our John series today, and uh, Mary Creek's been um, doing a series um, for several years on this for the Banyol Friends, and you might have heard some of the John series in our various services that we've shared together this year. Um, and so we, we come to this famous bit in John 14, at the start of John 14. Um, <clears throat> to begin our, our, our story of, uh, and looking at John 14, I want to I tell the story of the big picture of, of the Bible um, in, just an, in, a few, in a few words. Um, because the story of the Bible is really overarching um, from beginning to end. There's this story of um, heaven and earth and what happens to heaven and earth. And in the beginning of um, Genesis, we see heaven and earth together. We see God... Um, and humanity living together um, in the garden um, and they are in bliss, they're in in, in harmony. Um, And then early on in the story, um, humanity rebels against God and heaven and earth are pulled apart. And then the rest of the Bible is is what God does to bring heaven and earth um, back together again. And so when you get to the end of uh, uh, the Bible in Revelation, you see um, this beautiful image of the new heavens and the new earth um, coming together and God and humanity living once more um, in perfect harmony. Um, So the question that we've got um, for ourselves is, um, for this morning, is given that's the case, given that our destination as human beings is to one day end up in the new heavens and the new earth when the trumpet sounds in the twinkling of an eye, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, um, given that's our destination um, to one day be there, what happens in the meantime to us? What happens when we die? Where do we go? Um, This question um, is not just a theological question. It's a question that I, I, I see as deeply pastoral. Um, my grandparents, who who both died in the last sort of three years, were faithful Christians, um, and uh, you know they got to the end of their nineties, both of them, and um, you know at that point, uh, at the end of their life, they had great hope in God, and um, they died in peace. And the question for all all of us who knew them: Where are they now? Where are they now? Um, the resurrection has not happened yet. Um, so this is not just a cerebral theological question. If you are close to death, you want to have a good um, answer to this. You want to have assurance of where you're headed. If you're caring for someone who's sick and worried about dying, you want to know how to encourage them. The time to be clear in your mind about these things is now, and it's not you know, at the last minute when you're scrambling for an answer. Even if you are not close to death, this is a a crucial question for us all. I know that um, kids think about this question. Um, I know I think about it for myself. Where am I going to go when I die? So let's look at this passage, this famous passage, and uh, see what Jesus has to say. The setting of our passage is... Uh, the Last Supper, and it's a perfect storm of awfulness, of terribleness, what's just happened. It's not one bombshell 
not two bombshells, but three bombshells have just been revealed at the Last Supper. The first bombshell was the revelation uh, that Jesus was about to, to leave the apostles and uh, where he was going, they could not go. And this sounded pretty permanent to them. The other bombshell was that Judas, one of the apostles, was going to betray Jesus. And the third bombshell was that Peter was going to deny Jesus. So this was this kind of perfect storm of awfulness. Now, not all the apostles were privy to the information of what was happening. Uh, Some of this had been shared in private conversation between Peter and John, some to the whole group. Nevertheless, there were a lot of worried looks on their faces. So Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, if we look back to John 13, verse 21, um, which Mary Creek looked at last week, we'll see that even Jesus himself was troubled in spirit as he faced the realisation of what Judas was about to do. But here he says to the disciples for them not to be troubled in their hearts. So is there like one rule for Jesus and one rule for the, the, the apostles? Why is it okay for Jesus to be troubled, but not for them? Well, you'll be pleased to know there's no double standards here with Jesus. There are two main ways we can actually be troubled. And I just want to quickly look at that. One way the Bible encourages, and that is to be troubled for good and godly reasons. Rational reasons. Reasons that the Holy Spirit would agree with. You are grieving over what the Holy Spirit is grieving over as well. And the other way to be troubled is what Jesus is referring to here, which is a kind of an unreasonable troubled heart about things that are not worth worrying about. Now, this might sound like I'm splitting hairs here, but listen to uh, what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow is where you grieve over injustice or despair over your your own sin or someone else's or you become upset when someone is suffering. In godly grief, your spirit and the Holy Spirit grieve together about the same thing. And this is what Jesus was doing when he was troubled in his spirit over Judas. But worldly sorrow, the kind of troubled heart that Jesus is saying not to have, is when you are not in sync with the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is troubled over. You think irrational thoughts about God. You think that God has abandoned you. You think Jesus' salvation is not sufficient for you because you're too much of a sinner. You think that you are no good and that God doesn't love you. And it's likely that the disciples were thinking this way. Many of them would have started wondering if Jesus wasn't really their Lord. Was Jesus abandoning them? Had he God, had God turned his back on them? And when we are faced with death, uh, it is good and godly to grieve. It is. Jesus wept over his friend Lazarus when he died. But it is also possible to have ungodly grief 
over death. We might be churned up over the salvation of our Christian brother or sister. We might wonder if God really has them safe in his arms. To this kind of worry, which we know is not based on what we know about God, Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. And it needs to be said on the side that um, if you suffer from anxiety, then you will also struggle with, with irrational fears that you can't help. Your fight or flight uh, mechanism is in overdrive. You can't help it. And don't see Jesus as talking about you here or, or condemning you here. This is not what he's talking about. So what should they do? Well, Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus says, you don't need to be worried because your assurance and hope for eternal life comes from your belief in God, which means to believe in him. It's not one or the other. But this is a huge call. It's one thing to believe in the God of their ancestors. It's another thing to believe in the Jesus who is standing there right in front of them. Especially since one of them was about to betray him, another deny him, and that he was about to be killed on a Roman cross. All this makes belief in him a bit of a challenge at this moment. One of the things that I think you can do to be really encouraged in your faith is to talk to much older Christians who completely trust in Jesus. If you talk to an older Christian who's close to death, um, they often say that they're not worried about dying. They sometimes even smile when they talk about it. They know that God loves them and that they are safe with him. And this is what Jesus is saying to do. He's saying, you believe in God, believe also in me. Put your trust in me. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus is assuring them. Then he says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? It's a bit of a strange sentence. Maybe we could say it this way. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Now, Jesus doesn't mean the rooms are messy, so I have to go and prepare the place. You know, the Australian Rugby 7 team were there and they trashed the joint and I have to go and clean it up for you. He's not talking about prepare in that sense. Uh, no, the preparation he has to do involves his death and his resurrection. This is going to be required um, for them to go um, to his father's house. And when Jesus is talking about his father's house, he's, he's talking about heaven. The house of anyone is where that person lives. But the house of the father is not only where he lives, but he himself is the house. It is into this house that he gathers us. This is the house of glory, which is God himself. And we remain in this place, in God, in love, because God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them, as John writes in 1 John 4 verse 16. He says there are many rooms. And many is just to, be, just to clear up for a start that there's enough space for everyone to, uh, in God's hotel, as uh, Paul Kelly and Nick Cave wrote in that song. There's enough room. 
there isn't just 144,000 single rooms uh, in a ginormous hotel like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. You know, there's only a, a limited number of spaces. Um, there's no limitation for those who are saved. It's not going to be like the vaccine rollout where everyone wants one, but there's not enough to go around. Having many rooms in God's hotel does not mean that some rooms are better than others either. This is what some people think. Uh, it's, some people think it's a bit like maybe you, 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 um, you come to the, the famous uh, uh, Astoria Hotel, the Waldorf Astoria in New York, and you, you, the, the grandest hotel in New York, and you, uh, you get there into the grand lobby and you are taken up to your suite. And depending on how um, good a Christian you've been, you get dropped you get dropped off in a nice room, perhaps, and there you are. There you are in your special room. Uh, or if uh, you've only gone to church once a month and, and you didn't help out in the morning tea roster, you end up in this room and you don't have as good views or a plasma screen. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about when he says there's many rooms. And, you know, you might think, why would even Peter mention this? It's because Christians in history sometimes thought this way. No, this is not what Jesus means. He's, he's not saying qualities of rooms in the big hotel. For, ho- for heaven is happiness, and this is, our, this is our end. And what is perfect and complete does not have degrees of perfection. There cannot be different degrees of happiness. Why are we happy in heaven? Because here we have a perfect vision of God. Our heart is raised so high above earthly things that we will see God. We are also happy in heaven because we enjoy God. Our love for God burns brightly. And so we delight and enjoy him. We can have a taste of this now. As Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now I'm going to get a bit technical here, but it's in this momentary bit of being technical that we get the answer that we're looking for about where do we go when we die? if we are Christians, before uh, the end of time when Jesus returns and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Because here's the technicality. The, roo- the word for rooms, when, when Jesus says there are many rooms, is this Greek word monae, which means a temporary lodging. It is a way station, a truck stop on the way to the main holiday destination. When I was a kid... Uh, our family went on summer holidays to the New South Wales beachside town of Ulladulla. And uh, my mum and dad thought it was a bit too far to take the little kids, their little kids, um, in one hit, as they, they like to say, with the caravan. Um, so we'd stop off sometimes at Orbost, the lovely uh, Victorian town of Orbost, and uh, we'd, we'd stay there overnight in the caravan park and perhaps go for a swim in a sw- public swimming pool and have an icy pole. That was our Monet. It was our... It was our temporary lodging on the way to our destination. So the dwelling places or the rooms that Jesus is referring to is best best thought of as a safe place where the dead can rest while they await the resurrection to come. See, the early Christians didn't really talk about this idea of going to heaven when you die like we do. Uh, we Modern Christians talk about this a lot. You see it on, on, on gravestones, even. They talk about a, 
heavenly life as a temporary stage on the way to the resurrection body. That's more what they were interested in. So when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, who put his trust in him, today you will see me in paradise, this paradise does not mean their final destination. Because what we see from the next chapter in the book of Luke is that Jesus himself rises from the dead. So Jesus didn't hang around very long, did he? The paradise that Jesus refers to to the thief is a kind of happy garden where God's people rest before the resurrection. It's a temporary lodging. It's not hotel quarantine. I feel sorry for all those Olympic athletes who reach the glory of Olympic heights and then have to stay in a hotel for two weeks in a shoebox. The many rooms, the paradise that Jesus speaks of is far better than that. It's peaceful and in the safe love of God. The early Christians, they believed in this two-step future, death and the temporary place with God in paradise. And then secondly, a new bodily existence in a newly remade world. Let's look at verse 3 to 4 to conclude. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus is about to go to prepare a place for them by his death and resurrection. But he is going to come back and take them to be with him so that they can live forever with him. And Jesus is using this idea of coming in two ways. In the one sense, Jesus comes to us now by his spirit, through his word in the church. But in the bigger sense, in the more ultimate sense, he's coming back at the resurrection to bring us into the new heavens and the new earth. It would be fair to say there is a lot we don't understand about what happens when we die. But what we do know gives us comfort. And that is when we die, if we have put our trust in Jesus, we will be safe with him. And that at the last day, when the trumpet sounds, in the twinkling of an eye, we will rise in our resurrection bodies. So Jesus says in verse 4, you know the way to the place where I am going. The apostles know enough to know what to do. They know how to follow him. He's been showing them the way through his life and teaching. And if they follow in that way, they will arrive to where he is going. And that applies to us as well. So let's pray that our hearts will not be troubled and that we can put our trust in Jesus and follow him through our life and into our death. Let me pray for us. Lord God, in this time of COVID, uh, there's a lot of things that we worry about. Uh, And we know that many of us have people close to us who are suffering right now. And even some of us are suffering as well, deeply in many different ways. We, we, We pray, Lord, that we can put our trust in you, that we can be encouraged and have hope in our future destiny, with you. 
and that we can and that we can know your love in our hearts and know that when we do eventually one day die that we'll be safe in your arms amen